place to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Read verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in him, in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things upon the earth, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's uh, ask God's blessing upon our time of study. Let's pray. O Lord, your word is truth. Sanctify us now in this, your truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonders of your grace. Amen. I was adopted at the age of 22. Now you might think, well, that's a bit odd because usually it's infants and toddlers who are adopted. But not so in the Greco-Roman world. It was commonplace in those days that adult males be adopted by aging elderly couples um, who had no, childless couples who had no children. They did it for several reasons. I'll give you three. One, they wanted their name to carry on to future generation. They wanted uh, someone to take care of their estate and their aging years. And they wanted to give their inheritance to, to someone else. Well, Pastor Stazen, I've known you for years and I didn't know you were adopted. I know you and your wife adopted children, but of you, I didn't know that. 
Well, the adoption which I speak is a divine adoption. It's a spiritual adoption. Because we're in the Lord by His grace, His regenerating grace, uh, enabled me to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by His Spirit gave me the faith to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thus, having been justified, I've been adopted and received into God's family. And those of you who have made that same profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you too are adopted sons and daughters in God's family. Well, you know me. Most of you know me. I have a one-point sermon. I only have a one-point sermon. I only preach one-point sermons. And the point of the sermon is, and it's what you need to take home with you this day, think about this and ponder this. Brethren, know that from the beginning that God has predestined you unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Know from the beginning that God has predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now before we look at our passage for exposition this morning, let's first look at adoption in the Old Testament. Adoption in the Old Testament. I think you'll find this interesting that the word adoption or adopt does not appear in the Old Testament. There is no word in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Masoretic text, that's translated as adoption. If you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, of the Hebrew, uh, translated around 250 B.C., if you look in there, there's no word that's translated as adoption. And yet, the concept of adoption is well manifested in the Old Testament, where the law and the prophets, you read that care be provided for the fatherless and the orphans. You may well recall that frequent phrase in the Old Testament, for the orphans and the widows, or for the widows and the fatherless. It's very common. God was concerned that the covenant people of God take care of providing for the most vulnerable among them, which were the orphans and the widows. And so though the word itself adopt or adoption is not found in the Old Testament, the concept is present. You do have examples of human adoption, and there's definitely examples of a divine spiritual adoption found in the Old Testament. Uh, These Old Testament examples set the foundation for the doctrine of adoption as found in the New Testament, New Testament epistles. In fact, if you look at Romans chapter 9, 4, don't lose your place in Ephesians, we're coming back. But if you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 4, is what I'm going to focus on, but let me read, it's important that I read Romans 9, 1 through 11. Paul writes, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, but I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, 
and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God hath failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So did you see that in 9.4? It alludes to the adoption that was present, the divine adoption to be sure, the spiritual adoption to be sure, as found in the Old Testament. To who are the Israelites? To whom belong the adoption as sons? So again, though it's not found explicitly, you don't find the word adopt or adoption in the Old Testament, you do see that the concept is present there. It's present we read passages uh, such as this. kind of reminds us of Augustine's word who said, the old is in the new revealed, and the new is in the old concealed. And what that means is that we, we with our New Testament glasses on, we can see that the New Testament is, is, re, is, is concealed in the Old Testament. But we come to the New Testament and we see that the Old Testament is revealed. So again, what we find in the Old Testament is divine adoption, not human adoption, although I'm persuaded that the case can be made that human adoption finds its basis in divine spiritual adoption. Well, secondly, let's look at adoption in the New Testament. Now, pardon the technicality here, but it's important to see the origin of the English word that we translate as adoption. And we'll see the importance of this momentarily when we get to the text for exposition. Adoption is derived from a compound New Testament Greek word. It's called weothesia. Weo meaning son. Thesia means to place or placement of. Literally, it's placement as son, retranslated as adoption as sons. The Greek word weothesi appears five times in the New Testament. Uh, you find it in Ephesians chapter 1, Galatians 4, 5, Romans 8, 15, and 23, and then we just saw it again in Romans 9, 4. But again, surprisingly, weothesia, being a Greek word, is not found in the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. Okay, let's press on to our passage. Uh, the text itself is Ephesians 1, 5, but, and my preaching portion includes verses 4 through 8, 
but there's a larger context that begins in verse 1. So follow along as I read. Um, I will uh, unpack these verses for you, and there's uh, quite a suitcase here stuffed with a lot of good stuff, but I don't, I don't have the time uh, to go through this, but we'll, we'll highlight some things here for you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. Saints literally means those who are set apart unto God. They are believers. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to those in Ephesus by extension. He's writing to us. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you through the written word. God today doesn't speak to us audibly. If you want to know what God says, what he's speaking to you, you read the word of God. Old Testament, New Testament. 39 books, Old Testament, 27 New Testament. That's why it behooves you on a daily basis to read your scriptures, to study your scriptures. This is how God speaks to you today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures. Faithful, it's those who have faith in Christ Jesus alone for salvation. It's another term for saints. In Christ, this prepositional phrase, in Christ, uh, sometimes it's worded in him, appears 39 times in this epistle to the Ephesians. More than any other New Testament book, we find in Christ in the book of Ephesians. It's found in Paul's writings over 160 times. In Christ is a loaded prepositional phrase as it speaks to the believer's relationship to the Son of God. In Christ speaks about your union with Christ. I think that's how Jonathan Edwards puts it, in union with Christ. You can think of the, the coupling that uh, ties together uh, train cars. It's a coupling. It's you're in union. You're in union in Christ. It speaks about your relationship, your relationship to the Son of God. It's akin, really, I think, to what the Lord Jesus spoke in John 15, as he is the vine and his followers are the branches. The branches are in the vine. Those of us who are justified by faith are those who are in Christ. Saints, the faithful, are in Christ. The key here is being in Christ. As we work our way through this passage, just note the number of times in Christ or in Him or in the Beloved appears. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This epistle, this letter to the Ephesians begins with grace and it ends with grace. Look at Ephesians 6.2. Ephesians 6.24, I mean. Ephesians 6.24. Grace be with all those who, are, who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. So you have this epistle that begins with grace and it closes with grace. And you can be sure there's a lot of grace packed in the middle. There's a lot of grace in this particular passage in Ephesians chapter 1. You are in Christ... 
because of God's grace. Only by God's grace have you been loved by God, and only by Christ's grace and God's grace are you saved. Now, you might find this surprising, but your faith doesn't save you. Your faith doesn't save you. It's Christ Jesus who saves you. And faith is that instrument that attaches us to Christ. That's where Edwards is talking about the union with Christ. It's the instrument, it's the coupling which attaches us to Christ. Christ is the one who saves you. And my fear today is that a lot of church people inadvertently make their faith an evangelical work, a good work, an evangelical good work. But again, you know this. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved by your good deeds. And you sure do not deserve salvation. No, no, understand that even the faith that you place in Jesus Christ is a gift from God. You all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That we believers have the grace of God means that we also have the peace of God. Not as the world gives, but only the peace that God gives. Therefore, now having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice, every spiritual blessing, not some spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing. Those spiritual blessings follow in verses 4 through 14. I count nine of them. Every believer now has all these spiritual blessings. In the heavenly places uh, has caused uh, no little discussion among theologians as to its meaning. Do we have to be in heavenly places to receive these blessings? Do we have to be in church to receive these blessings? Actually sitting in a worship service, is this where we receive the blessings? Do we have to just be in church? Well, no. Let me offer you uh, a counter-explanation from a different perspective. That God has been pleased to bless us, believers, by pouring out heavenly blessings upon us from heaven. Uh, these are current blessings for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. All these spiritual blessings, they're all linked together because of who believers are in Christ. We believers have, if we, that we believers have any of these spiritual blessings is due to the fact, again, that we are in Christ, the faithful saints in Christ. Verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love. Take the first sentence there, part of that sentence there. He, that is, the Father, chose us. Paul's talking about those mentioned in verse 1, the saints, the faithful ones, by extension, you and me, before the foundation of the world. I'm going to talk prehistoric right here, prehistoric. Here it is, before time began. From all eternity, God's choice of us, remember, is based upon His grace, all of His grace. His choice is not based upon your believing. 
His choice was not based upon your believing. In other words, God did not take out his eternal binoculars and look down the corridors of time and say, aha, you're going to believe and therefore I'm going to predestine you, I'm going to elect you, I'm going to choose you. No, no. If God did look down the corridors of time, what would he see? He would see people dead in their trespasses and sins. And you know, spiritually dead people cannot respond, cannot respond to the gospel. He chose you because of his grace. He chose you because of his mercy. That you be holy and blameless before him. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. I already quoted verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When was beforehand? It was back at the foundation of the world. Back in all eternity. Back in all eternity. Note very carefully the next verse. And I want you to take it to heart. Let this verse sink in. Think about it. It starts in verse 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Like, wow. You know, instead of this knee-jerk reaction to the doctrine of predestination as being hard and cold and callous and unfair, know what God says. Know what God says about this. It starts in and with the love of God. God's intention in his choosing and setting your eternal destiny was based on the kindness of God, on God's love. I mean, do you see that? I mean, God's kindness, God's good pleasure, God's love. It was and it is God's will. God ordained it. He ordered it. From way back before you and I were even born. And this is really good news, isn't it? This is great news for you and me. That God chose us, that he predestined us, that he elected us unto salvation because if left to ourselves, we would never, ever have chosen God. Oh, pastor, you know, if I was Adam back in that garden, I, I wouldn't have eaten of that forbidden fruit. Really, believer? I mean, every day you eat some forbidden fruit. Every day. Every day you violate one of God's commandments of failing to do what he would have you to do, sin of omission, or, or neglecting. Sin of omission is neglecting to do what he has commanded you to do. Every day we eat our shame and our embarrassment that we eat of the forbidden fruit. You see, we, we human beings have a big problem. It's a really big problem. It's not inflation. It's not COVID-19. As bad as things are in Ukraine today, which is a result of this big problem that men have, and we see in Ephesians chapter 2-1 what our problem is. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead in our trespasses and sins. 
Because, you see, you would never choose to believe Christ as your Savior and follow Him as Lord because dead men are dead. And so if you're tracking with me, you see and you realize that God's choosing you by grace is a spiritual blessing. God predestinating you by grace is a spiritual blessing. And it follows that our election in Christ was to our adoption into God's family through Jesus Christ himself. Our election in Christ was to our adoption into God's family. God destined us from the foundation of the world that we would be in his family. And I think we often fail to make the connection that adoption and predestination function inseparably. You can't separate them. Commentator William Hendrickson says this, quote, adoption and predestination function inseparably. Predestination is unto adoption. Predestination is unto adoption. And we forget this, or we fail to entertain the thought that the only reason believers are placed into God's family, adopted into into God's family, is due to our relationship with Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. It's not because we're born again that we're adopted into God's family, but because our new birth gives us eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by putting our faith in Him, the faith that God gives us into Him, we have eternal life. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. And those that are justified by faith in Christ alone are adopted into God's family. You see, all these spiritual blessings that we read about here in Ephesians chapter 1 includes our adoption. And it's because we believers are in union with Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. And see to what end this electing grace points. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in him, the beloved. See, it's all to the praise of his glory. Whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. This phrase, to the praise of his glory, is mentioned a few times in these verses. Look at verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is given as a pledge of that inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Again, I want you to see the grace, the grace of God towards us, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in Christ. I mean, brethren, do you get the picture here? We have nothing, and we are nothing outside of Jesus Christ. All these spiritual blessings come to us because, by God's grace, you and I are in Christ. Furthermore, having been predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, alludes to the sacrificial work of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. In Him, again, in Christ, we have redemption 
through his blood. Now, though closely allied with salvation, redemption, I submit to you, is much more specific for it denotes the means by which salvation is achieved. In other words, the payment for a ransom. A ransom is paid to release a hostage. Ransom is paid often to release one from slavery. Christ, by his blood, paid the ransom to buy or to purchase back a fallen sinful people and to set them free from sin. Now the teaching here is that through Christ, that, the, that through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for the sins of his people, Christ set us free. He set us free from our sin, and he set us apart unto God. That makes us holy, set apart. Saints, literally, it's from the Greek word agios, which means holy. Uh, it speaks about the Holy Spirit. Agios is in there, Holy Spirit. He's set apart. We're set apart. In Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Set apart. Hebrews 10.10, you don't have to turn there, I'll read this to you. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul states, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. And in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 states, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, brethren, this is the crux of the matter. You can call it the crux of the cross. And all these spiritual blessings of Ephesians 1, they come to us believers as a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace that we have any of these blessings. And we have all these spiritual blessings now in Christ Jesus. J. Adams says, and I quote, The choice, the adoption, the love of God shown to us in Christ was what was effected in our redemption and the forgiveness of our trespasses. He goes on to say that in Christ, from before time began, God determined to give these blessings to his adopted sons, end quote. Thus it appears that the goal of predestination is the believer's salvation and adoption into God's family. And yet Romans 8, 28 and 29, would seem to indicate the predestination is more than adoption and the redemption of the unbeliever. Now, if you memorize that, you don't have to turn there. But if you haven't memorized, <clears throat> look at Romans chapter 8, 28 and 29. Romans chapter 8, 28 and 29. Now, we Presbyterians are kind of pat ourselves on the back that we know Romans 8.28, but we forget Romans 8.29. Look at the context. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You find the purpose in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That we're not only predestined unto adoption, but also predestined unto what? To become conformed to the image of his Son. Become conformed to Christ. What does it mean to be conformed? Mold, shape, chiseled. Sometimes God has to take a chisel to us to conform us to be more like Jesus. That's what verse 29 tells us, that we've been predestined to be adopted into the family, that we might become more like Jesus. So from the foundation of the world, predestinated as adoption of sons, from the foundation of the world, predestined to be conformed to the image of the beloved Son of God. See, our adoption as believers into the family of God is to make us more like Christ. Indeed. Adopted into the family of God that we believers might become more like Jesus. I mean, you're called as a believer to learn to do those things that please God. How do you know what the things are that God would have you do? You know the answer. It's found here. How do I know that I'm doing the will of God? Right here. That's right here. What God would have you to do. How do I know that I'm praying according to God's will? It's right here. You pray the promises of God. God has promised these things. God doesn't renege. The Bible tells us in Titus that God cannot lie. We're thankful for that because on the day of the consummation of the kingdom, we're standing before the Lord. We don't want to hear from Jesus that I have my fingers crossed. When I told you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. I was only teasing. No, our God keeps covenant. He keeps his promises. God is faithful. So adoption in the family of God that we might become more like Jesus. I mean, that's your purpose. That's my purpose. The end goal, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God, to the praise of his glory. Adoption is an act. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Shorter Catechism, question 34. When commentator states this, and I quote, Adoption changes status. It also changes hearts. It changes everything. Brethren, I have not even scratched the surface on this grand doctrine of adoption. We're going to look a little bit more at it uh, in our afternoon service. But in conclusion, I have some questions for you. I can't answer this for you. This, you have to answer this as individuals. Do you know the saving grace of God? I mean, do you? How do you know? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? How does one know whether or not they are in Christ? Well, I ask you another question. Do you believe? Do you believe in Christ Jesus, that he's the Son of God? Do you believe in his person? Do you believe in his work? 
Have you placed all of your hope of salvation in Jesus Christ alone? Faith, trust, believe in Christ? And if not, you need to. I would plead with you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation because if you're not in Christ, none of these blessings are yours. Not even one. All of these 14 blessings, all of them, are only in Christ. If you are in Christ, these blessings are yours. If not in Christ, none of these are your blessings. And once you are saved by God's grace, seek to please the Lord in thought, word, and deed. Please, Jesus, your Savior and your Lord. So, you know, like, what's your response? This is good news, really good news. What's your response to this? Electing grace and your adoption into God's family. I mean, what else can it be but hallelujah? Praise God. What a Savior. So, brethren, know that from the beginning, God has predestined you to be sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we are so thankful for the preservation of your word throughout the ages. Uh, so thankful, Lord, that we have the Bible, your word, your written word, your revealed will, will given to us in our own language. We're thankful, Lord, for the ability to read it. We're thankful especially for the Spirit of God who illumines our minds and shines a light on our path as we think about these spiritual things. We're so thankful, Lord, for all these blessings, for the benefits. But, Lord God, we're so thankful that it's in Christ. Again, Lord, we trust that you, by your Spirit, have given us eyes to see and ears to hear the marvelous truths of this doctrine. Might we, O oh God, press on, as Paul calls us to do in Philippians, and we might press on in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please uh, take your hymnal, uh, hymn number uh, 271.
seated. Read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Begin reading with verse 17. Again, the word of the Lord. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, some takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, he does not judge the body rightly. For this number many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. When our Lord Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he ordained this Holy Supper as a constant memorial and visible proclamation of his death. The Apostle Paul also teaches us that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. As we partake of this communion supper, therefore, we bear witness that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, that he took upon himself our flesh and blood, and that he bore the wrath of God on the cross for us. We also confess that he came to earth to bring us to heaven that he was condemned to die, that we might be pardoned, that he endured the suffering and death of the cross, that we might live through him, and that he was once forsaken by God, that we might be accepted by God. The sacrament thus confirms us in, the, in God's abiding love and faithfulness. By his holy supper, our Lord seals to our hearts the promises of God's gracious covenant and so assures us that we belong to his covenant family. Let us then be persuaded 
as we eat and drink in faith, that God will always love us, accept us as his children for the sake of his Son. Our Lord promises, moreover, that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are spiritually nourished. He imparts the benefits of his sacrifice and his covenant to all who partake in faith. The Holy Sacrament is also a means of grace that unites us with one another in the bond of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle says that we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Thus, even as he unites with us, he strengthens the bond of communion between us, his children. And finally, remember, the remembrance of our Lord's death revives us in the hope of his return. Since he has commanded us to do this until he comes, the Lord assures us that he will come again and take us to himself. So as we commune with him now under the veil of these earthly elements, we are assured that we shall someday behold him face to face and rejoice in the glory of his coming. And again, our Lord Jesus will surely do what he's promised. So let us now draw near to the table, believing that he will strengthen us in faith, that he will unite us in love and establish us more firmly in the hope of his coming. It's my solemn duty as a minister of the Christian gospel to warn the uninstructed, the profane, the scandalous, and those who secretly and penitently live in any sin not to approach the holy table lest they partake unworthily, not discerning the Lord's body, and so eat and drink condemnation to themselves. Thus, those who are invited to the supper are those who have been baptized into Christ's church, who have professed their faith in Christ publicly before the church, and who are endeavoring to live in keeping with their profession. So, if you're a communicant member in good standing of a Reformed, Protestant, and Evangelical congregation, you're invited to participate with us. Let's look to Lord in prayer. Lord our God, we do thank and we do praise you for your almighty power. We thank you, O Lord God, that you are a creator of the heavens and the earth, the universe, the sustainer of that universe. Lord God, we're thankful that you, through Christ, are our Redeemer. We're thankful, Lord, for your grace and how that grace so abundantly appears uh, throughout the Scriptures, but especially in our passage this morning, in Ephesians chapter 1. We're thankful for your electing grace, that your love was placed upon us from the foundation of the world, that we might be predestinated to be children of God, adopted sons and daughters. And what furthermore that we were predestined, that we would become more and more like Christ. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit of His regenerating grace, of His work in our hearts and lives that convict us of sin, of His grace, that repentance of grace that He gives us, that we can turn from our wicked ways and his grace that enables us to walk in holiness and godliness. We're so thankful for the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
But Lord, we're also so thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, of His person, of the incarnate God who lived the perfect life, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He who kept the law, all of God's law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, as He kept all the judicial laws and all the ceremonial laws, something we can't do, Lord, because of our sin. As we come to this table, Lord, we confess our sin. We come to this table, Lord, seeing it as a time of covenant renewal for ourselves, a time of rededicating ourselves to be more sincere and more consistent in our following you and obeying you and our trusting of you. We pray that you continue to grant unto us the effectual working of your spirit. We pray now, Lord, that you would bless these elements, that you would use them for their intended purpose. We ask, Lord, that you'd give us an extra measure of faith that we might feed upon Christ as we come to this table and in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. But, Lord, certainly as we come to this table, we come in faith in Jesus Christ, Christ who was crucified for us, Christ who was raised up for us, and, Lord, that we might be strengthened by grace, that we might live in him and for him. We ask all this now in the blessed name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, he, gave, he blessed the bread as I, in his name, blessed the bread. He broke it. He gave it unto his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, it's practice here. We until all are served, and then we'll commune together.
Jesus Christ, the bread of life, said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Savior also took the cup, blessed it, gave it unto his disciples and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which shed for many for the mission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Just a reminder that the uh, grape juice is in the middle.
Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Let's give thanks. Lord our God, as we think about this supper, the supper of the Lord, in many ways, we as the adopted children of God eat a food that the world doesn't have. That this supper is for us, the adopted children of God. Oh Lord our God, we're so thankful on how this particular sacrament, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, is a reminder of what Jesus Christ did for us in the past. The Lord God is also a reminder of the present reality in Christ. Again, it's a reminder of who we are in Christ Jesus. The Lord, also, this supper is, points to the future. The marriage supper of the Lamb which all of we, the adopted children of God, will one day enjoy. Lord, help us to think about these things and reflect upon them. We're thankful, Lord God, for your meeting us here at this table. Again, Lord, we worship you not for the blessings we received, but we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because of who you are, the very being of God. And Lord, we're mindful of the Old Testament as the inheritance was being distributed unto the sons of Israel. We are mindful that the tribe of Levi, the priests of God, did not have a land inheritance, but the scriptures state that their inheritance was God himself. Lord, you are our inheritance. When that day comes, that consummation of the kingdom, that all the saints, all the faithful, all those adopted into your family will praise and glorify you forever and ever. We do that now in a limited sense on this earth. We look forward, Lord, of worshiping you eternally, forever. We pray, Lord, as we think about these things, as we are heavenly minded, We're still in our earthly pilgrimage. Enable us, O God, to do the things that please you. Might we serve you with our heart, mind, soul, and body. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take your book of Psalms for singing, Psalm 23, Selection B. Let's stand.